Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. On today's episode, since I know we have been languishing in the trenches of detail and minutia, we shall, once again, continue our languishing adventure once more onto the breach of U.S. Army medium tank prototypes. This time, and for the very last time, at least in regards to the Sherman tank, we will be speaking on J. Walter Christie and his wild, wacky convertible medium tanks. Last episode, we took an insider look into the convertible tank medium T3 from the 19 from the M1928 prototype until the T3E3 iteration of 1936. 1936. A year that many of you might have clocked, assuming that you, like me, are avid World War II enthusiasts. Ah, uh, is that the right word? I mean, after all, being enthused about a war is a bit macabre. Anyway, let's not pick at that scab too much. 1936, for those of you who may not be totally aware, is the year that the Spanish Civil War broke out. July 17th of 1936, to be exact. Between the Republican forces, the left-leaning Republican forces, and the nationalist right-leaning forces. I won't bore us with all of the detail and retell the entire story from start to finish, because that's certainly not an easy task. I will say this, one of my all-time favorite books written about, or really during the Civil War, is called Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. And yes, that Mr. Orwell, uh, he, he was a socialist. And if you didn't understand that that man despised fascism and nationalism with every bone in his body, uh, I'm not entirely sure you were reading his books. Quote, I had come to Spain to join the militia to fight against fascism. End quote. And boy, howdy, did he fight fascism. He was actually horribly wounded, taking a rifle round to the throat. He and his wife barely escaped the country when the alphabet soup of Republican forces had purged itself of communist supporters, such as the POUM, which Orwell had fought with. They were now considered personas non grata. I can wholeheartedly say that if you have not read this work, you should go and get yourself a copy and read it immediately. It's my personal favorite of Orwell's, and it's quite an amazing first-person account of the Spanish Civil War through the eyes of a foreign fighter. Okay, enough gushing about Orwell. My point about the Spanish Civil War was that due to the hectic nature of the conflict, I mean, the list of belligerents and supporters is mind-boggling. A few of the big players had gotten involved, because why not test out your new military hardware in a place where your own countrymen won't have to suffer the fate of tactical bombing or massed armored combat, or seeing just how effective your new dive bombers might be in the upcoming conflict. Spoiler alert, it was not great for the civilians, or the combatants for that matter. 
When I mentioned that there were big players of the upcoming conflict, what I'm really talking about is that the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy, um, obviously Stalin was going to be siding with the Republicans and their left-leaning ideologies, whilst the Nazis and the Fasciti were busy helping the nationalists, you know, because of their right-leaning ideologies. As it turns out, some of these folks in Europe were anticipating some sort of failed diplomacy turning real, real ugly in the near future. And it was time to test out these new toys. The Germans specifically wanted to test out their Panzer Ones, not just testing out the equipment because the Panzer Ones are almost outdated in 1936, but kind of a proof of concept uh, as far as their armored theory was concerned along with testing several aircraft, which would feature prominently in the upcoming global conflict, notably the Ju-87 Stuka dive bomber, the Heinkel HE-111, and the Messerschmitt Bf-109. Not to mention the infamous Ju-52 transport plane, which would be used notably for all of the German airborne operations, and these were also the same planes that Goering would not be able to supply the 6th Army when they were surrounded in Stalingrad. Several lessons of inadequacies amongst the German forces were learned, especially when coming up against more advanced and the better equipped Soviet aircraft and even the Soviet T-26 and BT-5 light tanks. I won't regale us with battlefield glory from nations that are not involved in our story just yet, nor do I really want to dig too deep into it, but I wanted to mention, since the Battle of Guernica is a horrible civilian mass killing that was prosecuted by the Condor Legion, which was Germany's fun name for their military units um, attached to the Spanish Civil War. Essentially, both Nazi and Fasciti air forces at the behest of known asshole dictator Francisco Franco, to bomb the communication hubs in and around the town of Guernica. This operation was known as Unternehmen Rügen. Well, as you might imagine, in 1937, aerial bombing was literally a shit show, and, well, the results are not good. The city was all but destroyed. Rubble, chaos, fires... You name it, this place had it. A literal hellstorm swept through the town, a fire which continued burning well into the following day after the raid was finished. The town's defenses were shattered, and the will to resist the nationalists advanced was utterly crushed. Now, reports differ, but something like 200 to 1,700 people perished. It really depends on which source you use. It may... You know, it may seem kind of small compared to the bombing raids that will take place during the Second World War, but this was a front row seat to a brand new horror show that the Europeans had yet to see during a war. Remember, World War I bombing raids, they weren't deep tactical raids against towns, or I should say strategic raids. They were actually tactical raids, meaning they were more of a combat-based rather than civilian-based warfare. Returning our focus back to armor... Since the Spanish Civil War, you know, both the Soviets and the Nazis and even the fascist Italians had employed quite a few armored vehicles. The Soviets contributed 281 T-26 light tanks, 
50 BT-5 light tanks, all of which were supporting the left-leaning Republican forces, while the Nazis supplied the Nationalist with 122 Panzer Ones, and the Fascist Italians sent 155 of their CV-33-35 light tanks. If you're doing a little scorekeeping back at home, that's a whole lot of tanks. And again, the reason I'm kind of shining the spotlight here is in 1936, the latest and greatest American tank was the T3E3, of which only four existed in the entire U.S. arsenal. Meaning, the U.S. was not ready for deployment overseas, nearby, in the backyard, anywhere. So what is the plan? The United States can't be so naive to think that four modern tanks, as I'm air quoting here, is all that they might need in case a war were to break out, right? Right. So what was the United States Ordnance Department doing to prepare for a possible upcoming war with possible near-peer enemies like Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, or even the Soviet Union? who were busy gaining invaluable combat experience in Spain. Well, uh, they were moving ahead with the next generation of convertible medium tanks, led once again, and I should note here, the last time, J. Walter Christie. Weighing in at a whopping 13.5 tons, or 27,000 pounds, or 12,250 kilos, the brand new convertible medium tank T4, of which there would be 16 produced between 35 and 1936 at Rock Island Armory. I note here that Rock Island Armory was the producer, which again is the government-controlled facility. This was a departure from previous Christie tanks, which were usually built at Christie's own facilities. This was partly due to the contract and the amount of control that the U.S. government wished to exert on this project from the beginning. It was not meant as a slight against Mr. Christie, though it may have been misconstrued that way. The U.S. Ordnance Department wanted to ensure their needs were fulfilled and that Christie didn't step too far outside of the box. Or... Maybe just so that once completed, the T-4 would be a usable prototype for the U.S. Army. Anyway, the T-4 was running on the 268 horsepower air-cooled radial continental engine, which provided a powerful 19.8 horsepower per ton operating at 2400 RPMs. This generated a maximum speed of 37.8 miles per hour, or 60 kilometers per hour on tires, whilst boasting a maximum speed of 23.9 miles per hour, or 38 kilometers an hour, on tracks. Which was quite impressive for any tank of this period. But something, you know, I feel like we almost have come to expect that out of Christie's Garage. By this time in the world of armored advancement, four-man crews seemed to have become the norm. At least for the United States. And as such, we now see the more reasonable layout of having a driver situated in the hull to the front left, while next to him, the hull gunner sitting on the right in the hull front, who was equipped with a 30 caliber machine gun. 
Inside of the turret sat the gunner slash loader and the commander slash gunner slash loader. Wait a minute. Two loaders? Well, yes. Each man inside the turret was now responsible for a zone machine gun. Inside of the latest medium tank here, the T4, the main armament was a sawed-off 50 caliber machine gun operated by the primary gunner loader, while next to him sat another, well, another machine gun, but this time a 30 caliber machine gun, which was mounted separately and independently of the 50 caliber. This gun was the commander slash gunner slash loader's responsibility. This might almost look like a step in the wrong direction as far as firepower is concerned, but if we stop and think about it, during the Spanish Civil War, remember, the German, Soviet, and Italian tanks were all quite vulnerable to the armor-piercing rounds of the 7.92mm variety, which comes out to about 30, 32 caliber. And in case anyone was wondering, a 50 caliber round which is a half-inch in diameter thick bullet. So that's a big fucking round. And for what it's worth, is still in use today and quite effectively used today. The very same, at least in most of its design, the M2 50 caliber Browning heavy machine gun was actually initially designed in 1918 by John Browning. This was, of course, born out of combat experience from the Great War. The M1917 and later the M1919 30 caliber machine guns were quite reliable workhorses, and the U.S. Army used them quite extensively throughout the 1940s and well into the 50s and even the 60s, and probably some National Guard units had them well into the 70s and 80s. But Mr. Browning wanted something that packed a bigger punch. So the M1921 was born, which was a 50 caliber heavy machine gun, which was John Browning's original answer that he put forth. And according to George Chin in his little blue book, The Machine Gun, History, Evolution, and Development of Manually Operated, Full Automatic, and Power-Driven Aircraft Machine Guns, Volume 1, Department of the Navy, Bureau of Ordnance. Quote, This gun probably comes in a class of machine guns not peculiar to air service alone, and which are intermediate between the 30 caliber machine gun and small cannon. The tactical reasons for its development are as follows. By virtue of the bulk of the projectile fired from this gun and the muzzle velocity with which it can be fired, it is anticipated that a much more efficient armor-piercing, tracer, and incendiary bullet can be affected. An explosive bullet can also be developed much more easily than in the case of a smaller bullet like the 30 caliber now in use. It is anticipated that a machine gun to be efficient against aircraft of the future must be efficient against light armor plate. Armored planes were coming into being at the close of the Great War, both on part of the Allies and Germans. Against armor capable of being carried by aircraft, our 30 caliber ammunition would be of doubtful utility and of necessity we must go to higher calibers and higher muzzle velocities 
to obtain an effective ammunition for such combat. End quote. Now I know that quote carries on more about aircraft this and aircraft that, but I should note here that in the very last stages of the Great War, the Germans began flying aircraft which were more heavily armored than the previous generations of stretched canvas over balsa wood. I don't mean to say that they were flying tanks overhead, but the planes were more and more resistant to the rifle, excuse me, the rifle caliber machine guns which were being hurled at them, making light anti-aircraft guns like 30 caliber machine guns obsolete against these newer aircraft. Famously, and maybe take this anecdote with a grain of salt, but according to George Chin, the death of Quentin Roosevelt over the Marne in 1918 was a primary factor for furthering the research into a heavier armament for U.S. aircraft. And yes, Quentin Roosevelt is the son of Theodore Roosevelt. Apparently, Quentin was engaged with several German Fokker chassis aircraft, and his machine gun rounds seemed to have little to no effect against the Bosch planes. And instead, during the ensuing melee, Quentin was shot down when perhaps, you know, maybe if he had used a larger caliber machine gun, he might have taken the fight to the Bosch and gave him what for? Maybe that had something to do with it. But what Chin fails to mention, and maybe he didn't have quite all of the information available to him at the time. After all, his book was written in the 1950s. But Quentin and his wingmen were up against seven Fokkers and were outmaneuvered. Quote, Four of us were out on an early patrol and we had just crossed the lines looking for Bosch observation machines when we ran into seven Fokker chassis planes. They had the altitude and advantage of the sun on us. End quote. What Chin also fails to mention is that the fighter plane that ultimately shot Quentin down shot him in the head. Um, so it's very possible that Quentin had no idea the enemy Fokker was even behind him. Either way, the president's son, or I guess former president at this point, was killed in action. With that said, the United States was the first country to advance machine gun technology into the 50 caliber range, seeing what one would consider the writing on the wall that they needed a heavier caliber machine gun that was the intermediary step between machine guns and cannons. So back to this M1921, which was a water-cooled 50 caliber machine gun, designed by John Browning himself. There was an air-cooled aircraft version, but again, we're not the aircraft podcast, so we'll stay in our lane as much as possible. This early version of the Browning 50 caliber was dumbstruck with several issues. The muzzle velocity wasn't as high as Browning had hoped. Coming in at about 2,700 feet per second, it was identical to the Browning 30 caliber machine gun, which was fine, but it's not what Browning wanted. Not to mention, the lightweight barrels had many issues with overheating and deformation. Even with water cooling technology, it wasn't good enough to be used in prolonged bursts of fire. This brought into question the viability of this heavy machine gun and use for anything outside of prototypes. After all, what good is an anti-aircraft weapon 
if you can't squeeze the trigger long enough to mutter, die, motherfucker, die. I feel like we didn't, and maybe we should sometime later, do a proper rundown on John Browning's life. Uh, But unfortunately for us here at the Panzer Podcast, while his contribution to the world of armor is somewhat everlasting, his 50 caliber machine gun is all but on every single piece of U.S. armor starting right from 1935 to the present day. John Browning leaves us in our story here as he passes away in 1926 at the age of 71. Mr. Browning would never quite see his M1921 50 caliber heavy machine gun turn into the most iconic Ma Deuce the world has ever seen. That task would fall to one Dr. S.G. Green who at the time was a civilian and would later become a colonel during the Second World War. He was awarded the Exceptional Civilian Award for his work prior to the war, specifically on the advancements he made to the Browning 50 caliber machine gun. Dr. Green's everlasting contribution to the Browning 50 would come about five years uh, after diligently studying and testing the M1921. He noted that the main problem with the weapon was the receiver and the feed mechanism, and also that lightweight barrel. But that could be solved, I don't want to say easily, but more easily than the other issues. The 1932 innovation that would forever change the course of history was that of a basic universal receiver and operating mechanism. Quote, The basic receiver and operating mechanism was designed so that seven principal types of caliber 50 could be readily assembled by the substitution of such parts as barrel jacket, barrels, and other items on aircraft, anti-aircraft, combat vehicle, or ground-type machine guns. The basic receiver had all the improved features, such as the right and left-hand feed, and a new means was provided for obtaining a mechanical advantage in retracting the bolt. The strength of the driving spring and the weight of the barrel was increased to permit use of a more powerful cartridge, which allowed a longer barrel for maximum velocity and greater durability. End quote. The army was impressed. These modifications were exactly what they were looking for. However, keep in mind, it was 1932. The United States was still very much so suffering the debilitating effects of having zero dollars to spend on anything because the Great Depression was greatly impacting the budget of every facet in American life. And while this may not track with our more modern sense of the defense budget, but at the time, the budget would actually be cut back during these lean years. Shocking, I know. In 1933, only two of these modified Browning 50 caliber machine guns were manufactured by Colt, the company which Browning worked for. The M1921A1 and the M1921E2, both of which were the improved models of the M1921 50 caliber machine gun. But that was it. That's as far as the Army's dollars would get them. Just an improved prototype. Now, I don't know if you caught it earlier, but Mr. Chin's book, with that mouthful of a title, 
was written under the authority of the U.S. Navy. Now, wait a minute. The U.S. Navy? What the hell do they have to do with machine guns? Well, besides the fact that naval aviation, Navy PT boats, and oh yeah, the United States Marine Corps, not much, I guess. But really, if it weren't for the U.S. Navy's interest in this new 50 caliber machine gun, we may not have ever seen an M250. With Navy funding in hand, Colts was able to design a better round, sporting a muzzle velocity of 2,900 feet per second, and a now effective range of 1,800 meters, and a maximum range of 7,400 meters. The joint Army-Navy project was a resounding success, and we will get into the combat successes later on. But just keep in mind, this weapon from 1933 to the present day has changed very little. About 3 million of these M250 caliber heavy machine guns have been produced since then. Wow. Okay. Digression done and dusted. Like we were talking, the main armament of this medium tank, the T4, was simply a 50 caliber snub-nosed heavy machine gun and a 30 caliber machine gun and a 30 caliber machine gun mounted in the hull. In a lot of ways, especially to someone like me, seeing machine guns in place of even a small 37mm cannon sounds pretty counterintuitive. But let's take a step away and look at this more pragmatically. First of all, this was still a prototype, and in a lot of ways, the entire world was still trying to figure out their armored vehicles and actually, you know, how thick armor should be. And this, the armor section, that's the key component here. The T4, this medium tank, right now had an armor thickness of five eighths of an inch down to a quarter of an inch, meaning 15 millimeters at the thickest, all the way down to six millimeters at the thinnest. And according to the U.S. Army's Field Manual 23-65, Browning Machine Gun 50 caliber M2, the penetration capability of the Browning 50 caliber is, quote, one half inch, 12.7 millimeters, at 600 meters against face-hardened armor plate, and three quarters of an inch, 17.8 millimeters, of rolled homogeneous armor, at 600 meters, end quote. Okay, so let's kind of break that down. Considering the contemporary tanks at the time, that is, let's just say Panzer I, Panzer II, and the Panzer III, all had a maximum armor thickness of only 15 millimeters. There were a couple of spots that kind of were reinforced with applique armor, but let's just, for the sake of argument, 15 millimeters on paper was the thickest point, and not all of that armor would be face-hardened. The manual also mentions that sustained and concentrated fire could force its way through thicker armor, but again, that's all kind of speculation and anecdotal. Even, even the above penetration capabilities are always up for a bit of debate. I'm not saying that the 50 caliber cannot penetrate something that thick at that distance, but 
combat conditions vary greatly compared to laboratory tests. So take it for what it's worth. The 50 caliber machine gun was a powerful weapon and it was not wholly useless against other tanks. It just seems unconventional to our modern eyes as a main armament. So what did the T4 really offer in the way of protection anyway? I know I mentioned at the top here, 5 eighths of an inch or 15 millimeters at the thick points, which means the front-facing crew compartment and the turret face for sure, while you know other various parts tapered down all the way to a quarter of an inch or about 6 millimeters at the thin points. The roof, the engine deck, that kind of thing. Having mentioned my affinity for symmetry last episode, I thought I would mention how much I thoroughly enjoy the look of the T4. Besides some of the riveted plates, which I don't like, um, this thing's actually pretty cool looking. And it really reminds you of one of the BT series, the light tanks of the uh, Soviet flavor, or even an M24 Chaffee. From the profile, this tank is pretty slick. It has four large rubber-tired road wheels, evenly spaced, thank fucking God, which was rear-driven with a proper sprocket, meaning it has teeth on the sprocket to help move the track along with the inner teeth of the tracks as well. Speaking of the tracks, we have some very German-looking steel tracks. They're 12 inches wide, 30 centimeters, with a pitch of four and three quarters of an inch, or 12 centimeters. Being the last of its kind, that is to say, the last of the convertible medium tanks, the rear pair of road wheels were chain-driven from the final drive when they were on wheels, which was an experiment on a previous prototype of Christie's. This time, however, it was installed from the get-go and seemed to work well enough. What set this prototype apart from the previous models of the so-called fast-tracked vehicles was, at least according to R.P. Honeycutt, quote, One of the most important improvements over the earlier tanks was the use of controlled differential steering, end quote. I'm sorry, could you repeat that last part? Uh, in 1936, the Americans, at least the American tank developers, had decided that the clutch brake steering system was absolute trash and had been readily and solidly improved by replacing it with literally anything. I'm sorry, not just anything, but differential steering. According to Merriam-Webster, quote, a drivetrain gear assembly connecting two collinear shafts or axles, such as those of the rear wheels of an automobile, and permitting one shaft to revolve faster than the other. End quote. Simple as, right? Okay. What this actually means is that the drive sprocket on each side has the ability to move almost independently. By reducing speed to one side of the tracks while allowing the other to continue moving at a higher speed. Because of this differential gear the tank can now turn much more easily than, say, the clutch and brake steering mechanism. There is an excellent video from 1937 
if you'll kindly navigate yourself to YouTube and look up Around the Corner, How Differential Steering Works. It's about nine minutes long and is extremely helpful for the dum-dums like myself. Not to shit on the Panther steering mechanism too much. I mean, what, we did like 11 episodes on that. But this type of gearing was out of their reach, the Germans' reach, due to the material and manufacturing components necessary. The United States, on the other hand, did not have that problem. It's also worth noting here that this very early version of differential steering, notably called controlled differential steering, very slightly from an automobile's differential steering in that the gears within the differential, actually they're called pinions within, could be locked in place when turning, which would cause one side to turn faster than the other track. This had a plus and a minus side to it. The plus side was you lost no power due to braking because you didn't have to brake. This pinion just slowed it down but didn't lose any power. The minus was that only one turning radius was effectively effective. You could tighten up the turn radius, but that would require you to apply the brakes, and thus you would lose power. Not a huge deal, but remember, being able to maneuver during combat is very important. So, while still not a perfect steering mechanism, it was a vast improvement over the the turn-of-the-century clutch brake system of yesteryear. The front end of this vehicle had a nice angled glacius, rounding near the bottom where the idler wheels were located. Very proto-Sherman, if you ask me. Whereupon at the top of this slope resides the driver and hull gunner positions. They were sat behind flat, forward-facing hatches with a large vision slit, which had its own slider that could decrease the size of the opening, further protecting yourself from smaller bits of shrapnel or even bullets. The driver and hull gunner were also able to see out of the left and the right of their cubby holes. There were two more vision slits on the left and the right side, which gave them a little extra vision. The vehicle's siding was quite simple, you know, flat with large fenders that hung over the tracks. These fenders doubled as the track's carrying compartment when converted into wheelie mode. The rear of the vehicle had sort of a lazy slope to it, covering the engine with the exhaust pipe sitting on top of the rear deck. Nothing remarkable, but it was a little different. It wasn't just flat. The vehicle itself was 16 feet long, or 4.8 meters long, 8 feet or 2.4 meters wide, and if you include the turret, 7 feet or 2.1 meters tall. The turret on the T4 was rounded in the rear half, kind of like the letter C, like a half circle, where it then steps down to a flat front where the two machine gun mounts are located. The reason for this is twofold. One is to fit the two men side by side within the turret, and also to allow the two independent machine guns and their mounts the ability and space to operate. On top of the turret was a hatch for the commander to hang out and get a better bearing of his situation while not in combat. During this period of tank development, 
The commander would be buttoned up during combat because also while while being the commander, he was also in charge of one of the machine guns. This practice would change down the line, especially once five-man crews became the norm and the turrets became a little bit roomier. Before the T-4 ever got its chance in the sun, the project was canceled outright. Kidding, kidding. But before it was ever to see the Aberdeen testing grounds, Christie decided to simultaneously build three other prototypes, all of which would be based on the T-4 chassis. This would end up being another one of the casemate barbette-style tanks, which just meant no turret, just a fixed box on treads and wheels. Known as the, drumroll please, T-4E1. The casemated T-4E1 was essentially a barbette. For those who don't read a ton of tank nomenclature, a barbette is basically just an enclosed, protective, and often armored box or emplacement. Originally used for things like naval guns and even land-based cannon emplacements, of course, it's derived from the French en barbette, meaning a raised platform or a fixed armored housing at the base of a gun turret on a warship or armored vehicle. Thank you, Webster. The T4E1, being a big, fat, squat monstrosity, had increased the size of the fighting compartment considerably. So, being the good Americans that they were, they decided why not add three more 30 caliber machine guns. There were two facing out to the sides, and of course they added an additional rear-facing machine gun. Given the T4E1 five 30 calibers and one 50 caliber machine gun as its armament. Another fun tidbit, the enlarged fighting compartment, not wanting for space, was fitted with additional fuel capacity, which damn near doubled the amount of fuel this thing could carry compared to the T4 originally, which only carried 41.5 gallons of fuel. The T4E1, with this increased fuel capacity, was now able to carry 79.5 gallons. That's a lot of fuel. That's a lot of fuel for the time. The barbette itself was ugly as sin. Uh, it reminds me of the Italian SEM 47-32 or the SEM 75-18, just without the big gun. Sorry, Italy, your tanks disgust me. Anyway, the barbette sat as tall as the turret would, so seven feet tall, with a snare drum-sized cupola which sat middle-middle of the barbette itself. The front-facing portion was still flat, which also further reduced the vision of the driver and the hull gunner, as the casemate now encompassed all of that space on the side, and it actually went all the way out to the edges of the fender. Um, if you kind of, if you could imagine, the overall shape of the vehicle was basically that of a mushroom. The lower hull was skinnier than that of the upper hull. I, when I tell you this thing was not pretty, folks, I, I really hate this whole thing, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding here. I'm just here to report the facts, um, and you know my conjecture and nonsense. Otherwise, the vehicle's powertrain, engine, and suspension were identical to that of the T4. 
Moving on to the service test, which took place at, of course, the Aberdeen testing grounds, but also at Fort Benning, which was a twofold effort to allow more troops an opportunity to get their hands on the vehicles and to put them through the ringer, along with the engineers and, of course, the ordnance department. Testing began at the end of 1935 and the kind of early 36. If I sound like a broken record when I tell you that this tank was also deemed underpowered, well, you're right. You know, it, it was such a common problem that these early tanks faced, engine technology being what it was, they were all pretty much underpowered. However, despite this underpowered badge that the T4 and the T4E1 would wear, both vehicles were recommended for standardization on February 6th of 1936 which was subsequently outright rejected by the Office of the Adjunct General, for reasons which made sense. The T-4 and the T-4E-1 would have cost the government twice as much as the M-2 light tank previously mentioned. Not only to mention that the cost was twice as much, but the offensive capabilities and armor protection weren't much better than that of the M-2 light tank anyway. To put simply, besides the differential steering, this tank didn't offer much more than the M2 light tank could, so they shelved it. Or did they? War, after all, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, war was looming. In 1936, you know, the Spanish Civil War was going, Hitler was doing his thing, you know, Mussolini was doing his thing. As 1936 turned into 37, turned into 38, I mean, by 1939, Hitler's transgressions and seemingly insatiable appetite for annexation and expansion would lead any reasonable defense-minded individual to assume that war was back on the menu. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, and, you know, with or without the public support, because remember, the enemy always gets a vote despite your best laid plans, the United States was possibly going to find itself in another European war in a short amount of time. The army decided then that the T4 and the T4E1 should be once again put up for standardization. And finally, on March 30th, 1939, it was approved. The T4 and the T4E1 would be redesignated as the convertible medium tank M1 limited standard. The service life for this storied vehicle would make it all the way to March of 1940, so one year. Granted, only 18 of them were in service, and by in service, I mean palling around at Fort Benning. Fortunately for us, those 18 vehicles one of them managed to avoid the scrapyard. And furthermore, it actually still exists at the National Armor and Cavalry Museum, NACM for short, or NACM, which is located at Fort Benning itself. I'm not exactly sure what their public visitation policies are currently, but I do believe that they, they might be open to the public, or at the very least, I know that they have like particular days where the public can come and check out their vehicles, or I think they do like public displays kind of thing. Their collection is 
beyond cool, like super fucking rad cool. Um, kind of a kind of a happy ending for this tank. Uh, if if tank prototypes can have happy endings, but outside of you know being shelved for a museum piece, it was already obsolete in 1940, uh, and really not much can be said other than it was a training vehicle. So while, you know, while we are closing the books on the convertible medium tank era of the United States armor development, we are also going to say goodbye to J. Walter Christie. Maybe, maybe it's kind of a see you later since he'll be making some more appearances down the road on the Panzer podcast. We won't be quite finished with him yet, but as far as the Sherman is concerned, adios, muchacho. So besides the fact that apparently the U.S. Army was beginning to show a bit of an obsession with machine guns, this prototype will be the last of the prototypes that do not have a direct through line to the M4 Sherman. What I mean by that is, the next prototype vehicle that we will be discussing next episode will directly result and influence what the M4 Sherman medium tank looks like which is great for our narrative, but also is an interesting insight. Because we're only a few years or so away from the war kicking into high gear, and the U.S. finally coming up with the most produced tank ever, as far as U.S. produced tanks go anyway. So I don't want to waste too much more time here at the bottom of the episode, but if these episodes were set in the Star Wars universe, these are the prequels. Uh, wait. No, 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 that's not good because nobody liked those. Um, this is the origin story, as it were. Maybe, maybe more like a Marvel prequel movie. Whatever. You know what I'm saying. I'm sorry. One last thing before we go, because I am so terrible at this whole social media slash marketing game, like the part of the part of trying to host a podcast by yourself, which kind of kind of sucks and gets a little crazy. However, I have officially opened the Panzer Shop. So if you would like to buy some Panzer Podcast merchandise, head on over to thepanzerpodcast.bigcartel.com. We are currently taking pre-orders until October 31st. Use discount code PRESALEPANZER2022, one word, so it's PRESALEPANZER, and then the numbers 2022, all smashed together and you will receive 20% off your order. For now, we only have one piece of merchandise, and that is the Panzer Podcast Panther stickers. They are six, ah, they are six inches by three inches, or 15.24 centimeters by 7.62 centimeters, which are made of high-quality Oracle 651 vinyl. I can attest that these do not fade, peel or otherwise take a shit on you i am a big fan of stickers so i made sure to go out and get the good stuff if you're interested in supporting the podcast this is one of the ways you can do it all of these proceeds will go directly back into the podcast books better recording equipment research material access translations that kind of thing anyway if you're interested check it out once again, that's thepanzerpodcast.bigcartel.com. Use code PRESALEPANZER2022 for a 20% discount. 
As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. If you like what we're doing here, I would appreciate a positive review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or however you're listening, if, if possible, because it does help us reach new audience members, and I really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening.